Let's assume though, because I think it's a fair assumption that I was tested because I was a woman. Well, what's the best thing to do when you're tested? Pass the damn test. Yeah. So that's where I put my energy. Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here and welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History in season six. Tonight, today, whenever you're watching this, we are talking to a trailblazer who has one of the greatest nicknames in all of sports, the Princess of Darkness. The former CEO of the Raiders franchise, Amy Trask, joins us to talk about her incredible journey to football and how she got the job with the Raiders and what she did to get into the good graces of then general partner Al Davis, when she got there. It's an amazing story about an amazing woman who has led the way for so many others to follow their dreams. Please enjoy this episode with the one and only Amy Trask. Okay, so let's start here. If anybody follows you on Twitter, by the way, they should follow you at Amy Trask. You tend to drop these little nuggets, these little hints, these little breadcrumbs that you might've been a giant pain in the ass as a kid. How much of a pain in the ass were you as a kid? Uh, I don't know that those were nuggets or breadcrumbs. I will say it loudly and clearly. <laughs> I was every kind of a pain. Trey, in kindergarten, I was labeled a behavior problem. Now, first of all, no one should label a child yeah. in any manner, let alone someone in kindergarten. But I just, I, my mom tells this story, told this story all the time that it was a week or two into kindergarten and she picked me up and she's driving me home and my sister's in the car and she says, what'd you do today in school? And I said, nothing. And she said, Amy, I know you did something. What did you do? <laughs> and I said, nothing. And this went back and forth a few times. And she said, look, you can tell me, mom, I'm hungry. I'll talk about it later. Or can we not talk about this right now? But don't tell me you did nothing because I know you did something. So let's start with this. I dropped you off. Then what happened? We went in the classroom. Then what happened? I got sent to stand in the corner. <laughs> then what happened? I stood in the corner the whole day and then you picked me up. And my sister said, how often does this happen? And I said, every day. My mom busts a U-turn, goes back to kindergarten and said, what's going on here? And they said, your child's a behavior problem. So that label was attached to me in kindergarten. It stayed with me all the way through high school and most people who know me would say it's still applicable now. And you know what? That's yeah. okay. Yeah, well, but I mean, like, was it just because you were so headstrong and you had an opinion about something and teachers didn't want to deal with that? I mean, I, I see you as a perfectly affable person and you know, we've known each other for a while. So I, I have a hard time with you being that obstinate or that obnoxious, you know? Well, let me tell you what it said on every report card. Doesn't follow direction, doesn't take instruction, doesn't listen behavior problem, talks back, all perfectly accurate. Well, listen, you've just described every great entrepreneur, inventor, and trailblazer. So I guess you're completely happy with that being part of your legacy. Well, one might suggest, and be quite accurate, that this may be why Al and I were able to work together for almost 30 years. Yeah. Um, We'll get to Al in a minute, but I, and I found this article that was uh, really interesting and very insightful uh, on, on a lot of your background. Your family was not a huge football family, right? And you were the youngest of all your siblings, correct? Right. And you are right. Well, you're right in both regards, um, yeah. the youngest. And 
you know, look, my family was uh, happy to go to a college game for the alma mater of someone, you know, if it was related to the family and went to a Super Bowl party or hosted a Super Bowl party every year, but absolutely not a family that watches football on Sundays. It, my family was always out and doing something on Sundays. And I was the one who, from the time I fell in love with the game in junior high, said, no, I want to stay home and watch football. And they all looked at me like, this is yet more proof we took the wrong one home from the hospital. <laughs> so what, what was it? Like, when did you realize, hey, I dig this thing and I really, really like it? It was junior high. Uh, I went to um, a junior high football game at the start of junior high. Back in the day, kids, junior high started in seventh grade, not I think now it starts in sixth grade. Junior high started in seventh grade. And in the seventh grade, I went to a football game and I just fell in love with the game. I mean, look, it's an exciting game. There's uh, speed, power, strength, but it's also a very cerebral game. It's a game of matchups. How do your corners match up against, you know, my receivers? How do my receivers match up against your corners? How does pass protection match up with pass defense? Can the linebackers cover the running backs? It's a game of matchups. It's a cerebral game with very fast, strong, large well, I'll say it's a game of chess with large, well, strong, powerful chess pieces. See, I'm glad you said that because I've always to describe my love of football has been, you remember the first Harry Potter movie where they played wizard's chess? Of course I remember Harry Potter. I that, loved Harry that, Potter. That to, me, that to me is football. Like football is wizard's chess, except not as many people actually die. You know what I mean? But it's, <laughs> it's, it's all strategy, but there are consequences if the strategy is poor. Agreed. So when did you have an idea that, okay, I don't see a lot of people like me, women, uh, making a living in football. I think maybe I want to try that. You know, I never had a strategy or a plan. I didn't have a long-term plan. Same here. Never. <laughs> never had a plan. Never had a strategy. At one point during my career, after I'd been with the Raiders for some time, someone um, I trust in every regard said to me, you need to have a five-year plan. And I looked at him and I said, I'm, I don't need to, I don't have a plan. I don't need a plan five years or otherwise. I don't want a plan. I've never had a plan in this regard, uh, in a career sense. I don't have a plan at all in any sense. And by the way, that whole five year plan thing, it didn't work out so well for the Russians. Yeah. <laughs> Great reference. Um, so you, you, you go, the, you go to Cal Berkeley, very good school. And then did you get your, then you decided to go to law school, right? When did right. you start interning for the Raiders? Okay, so I went to Cal, as you noted, but not just yeah. a very good school, Trey. A yeah. great school. That's fair. Went to Cal, and while I was at Cal, the Raiders were in Oakland. Al had not yet moved them to Los Angeles. Right. So I had the opportunity to see some Raider games in person, fell in love with everything about the organizations for reasons we can discuss if you wish. Yeah. But upon graduating Cal... I moved back home to Los Angeles, which is where I grew up, to go to law school, as you noted. And that was the same year the Raiders finalized the move to Los Angeles. The organization had tried to move a couple of years earlier, but uh, a year or so earlier, I don't remember exactly the length of time, but the court ordered them back in that litigation that was pending. So the year I graduated Cal and moved to Los Angeles was the year Al was able to ultimately move the team to Los Angeles. And when I, I, you know, I thought, well, you know, I feel badly, of course, for the fans in Oakland, but kind of cool for me. My favorite team's moving with me to Los Angeles. Uh, 
I wasn't with the team. I had no association with the team. I was simply a fan. Started law school and I heard all these people talking about internships and externships. And I'd never heard the word externship before. And I didn't know what the difference was, but didn't really matter to me. And I picked up the phone and I called the Raider organization and asked if I could be an intern. Well, first of all, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm always nice to the interns because some of those people may end up being your boss one of these days, right? You weren't, Roger Goodell was an intern with the Jets, okay? So everybody comes down and meets in the middle. So, you know, when you're here and the intern is there, be nice to them because eventually that intern will be here and you might be down at the bottom of the pole. Well, and be nice to all your coworkers. I mean, it, it's, it. look, everybody in sports always talks about team, team, team. And you want the players on your team to be teammates. So if the left tackle is having trouble one-on-one -on -one blocking, the left guard will slide over oftentimes and help the left tackle out. If a corner is having trouble with man-to-man -man defense, that safety is going to come over and help. So it never ceased to both amaze and annoy the heck out of me when people who would give lip service to teammates being teammates on the field wouldn't be teammates in their roles off the field. If you're a teammate, you're a teammate. And it doesn't matter whether the person with whom you're interacting is the CEO or an intern, you're teammates. All right, so what was your first official duty as an intern for the Raiders? So I joined the organization as an intern in the legal department. Now, mind you, the legal department was one man, the general counsel, and I interned under his guidance, his auspices, but I did anything and everything I could. I would walk from... Uh, area of the organization to area of the organization once I'd finished my primary responsibilities and say, how can I help? So I would wander into the ticket office and help alphabetize envelopes for the upcoming, you know, will call envelopes for the upcoming game. So my primary responsibility was in the legal department, but I did everything I could to help in any way I could and to learn as much as I could. Yeah. By the way, uh, I, I, I would imagine being an intern in the legal department for the Raiders kept you pretty busy because as you alluded to, Al well, was okay. always pushing the envelope. Well, now, now it's my turn to do as I always do when this topic comes up and yeah. revert to my inner eight-year-old. Yeah. We didn't start it. Yeah. Mom, he started it. Yeah. We didn't start it. Yeah. So yes, Al did push the envelope. And by the way, and on a very serious and, and special note, he pushed the envelope in every regard. And that's why I have the career I do. Yeah. But as to the litigation, I just want to note, mom, they started it yeah. because we were the defendant. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I do want to get into all of that with Al because I think there's a certain generation of fans who see Al for what he was in his last few years and don't see him in totality. And they're very, very different pictures of the same man. So I do want to go into that at great length, but, but I want to get more about, about you here because I, you said, I fell in love with this team for a variety of reasons. I, I can see why. A, headstrong, obstinate, have your own opinions, uh, doesn't necessarily at all times play well with others, and sees things in a certain way and you want them done. Like to me, those things are perfect examples of why you and the Raiders seem to click. Well, look, this was an organization owned and led by a man, Al Davis, who didn't care whether someone was a behavior problem. So that resonated with me immediately. 
he would bring into the organization on field and off people that other organizations had labeled behavior chances, uh, behavior problems. He would give those people second chances, and in some cases, third and fourth chances, and in some cases, more chances than many people thought he should. But the fact is, I was labeled a behavior problem, and I was given second chances and third chances and more chances throughout my childhood and growing up. So the fact that he would hire people, bring on people, sign men who were labeled behavior problems, and give people extra chances really resonated with me. And Trey, to your point, I remember watching games on television when the team was on the road. And you would often see the road teams, uh, the visiting teams, get out of the team buses and they'd be wearing sport coats and suits and carrying briefcases as they walk from the team bus into the stadium. And then you'd see the Raiders get off the team bus and they would just spill out of the bus looking like something the cat dragged in, to use that expression. God knows what they'd been up to the night before, where they'd been, Accurate. but they came in, bedraggled, and they won. Yeah, and they kicked the crap out of a lot of people in the process. Um, so you were you were interned for the Raiders, then you left the organization and got what we call a real job. And, <laughs> you know, but did you always have that inkling that this, I, I really want to go back and be in football? Well, I loved my time with the Raiders, of course. I extended my internship. So rather than serving as an intern for only a year, I think it was closer to two years, maybe a little more late, maybe a little less. But yes, when I graduated law school, I took what you just referenced was a real job. And I was in that job for approximately a year when my phone rang and it was a landline, kids. In those days, we called one another on landlines. Yeah, they were somewhere in the house. They didn't move. (laughs) This one was actually, I think, in my office, but yes, they were in the house, and it was the general counsel, the the man to whom I referred earlier, Jeff Beeren, calling and saying that the organization had decided to add another lawyer. The organization had just been sued again, and they decided to add another lawyer, and would I be interested in the job? Well, I said yes. I didn't ask what the job would entail. I didn't ask how much the job paid. I asked no questions. I simply said, yes. I hung up the phone and I ran so fast to the managing partner's office in the law firm in which I was working that Al would assign me to play corner had he seen how (laughs) fast I ran. And I gave notice and I immediately let my husband know um, that I got this job offer and, and I took the job and I had no idea how much it paid. And neither one of us cared about that. And in fact, it ended up being a significant pay cut and neither one of us cared about that. And that's when I began my career. So there was a couple of year, I don't know, maybe a year or so, year and a half. I don't remember precisely what the gap was between the end of my internship and starting full time. All right, why don't we take a break right here with Amy on this episode of Half Forgotten History. And when we come back, we'll talk about how she parlayed being a pay cut second lawyer in the legal department of the Raiders to being basically the grand master of time, space, and dimension, the CEO (laughs) for so many years of the Raiders under Al Davis. We're back with more of Amy Trask on this episode of Half Forgotten History right after this. This podcast is presented to you by Visa, a network working for everyone. Overcoming the odds, rewriting the playbook, delivering under pressure. The MVPs of small businesses lead their teams to victory all year long. And Visa is proud to provide playmakers everywhere with more tools to help their business and help them achieve even greater success. 
because the more we can empower, the more we all win. Visa, a network giving small businesses tools to grow. All right, back with Amy Trask on this episode of Half Forgotten History. So you took a pay cut to join the Raiders legal department as a second lawyer. Again, very active position with the Raiders at that time. How did you go from being the second tier lawyer to CEO of the organization? Well, there were a lot of years in between starting and um, growing into that role. And it, it happened over time. And again, I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a strategy. Uh, when people have said to me, how did you strategize that growth? How did you plan that growth? I didn't. Uh, I was with the organization a lot of years. And this goes back to something I shared with you earlier that I began when I was an intern and I continued the moment I was hired full time. I went through the building into every department, offered to help, offered to do anything I could to assist in any way I could. And on a couple of occasions, people on staff said to me, Ooh, Amy, Al is not going to like that. Al is not going to like you walking around this building, walking around. Well, we had multiple buildings at the time in the facility in which we were housed. He's not going to like it that you're walking around and walking into other people's areas and trying to insert yourself. And I was warned uh, or ostensibly warned that Al would not like what I was doing, but I didn't stop it. And it one day, happenstance, uh, Al's office was on the second floor, as was the office I shared with someone else. And I was walking up the staircase when he was walking down. And when we stopped at the exact same spot, he looked at me and said, how are we doing on ticket sales? And I knew the answer. And I told him. And what that told me was he did know what I was doing. He did know I was walking through the organization and going into every department and learning as much as I could. And not only was he not bothered by it, I think that was what his way of encouraging me to continue to do it, at a minimum, letting me know it wasn't troubling to him. But what I also learned was, okay, Aim, then you better know the answer. I find it interesting because everyone else was basically saying, don't do this, and you decided to do it anyway. Do you think Al sort of loved that rebellious spirit about you? Uh, he might have. He might have. Look, I'll take this moment, if I may, to tell you that one of the biggest misconceptions, if not the biggest misconception about Al, is that one couldn't disagree with him, that he wouldn't tolerate disagreement, he wouldn't tolerate those who disagreed with him. If that were the case, I would have been fired roughly two, two and a half weeks into my job, where I really did disagree with him loudly, clearly, boldly, and we had a big argument heard by everyone. My point being, I don't know whether it was that I was doing that which you just noted, which is sort of walking around and learning things even though people had warned me not to, or whether I disagreed with him. But something clicked and we were able to work together for almost 30 years during which period of time I disagreed with him more than I agreed with him. And that was okay with him. Obviously, you were aware that you were the only woman in that role. But how much did you think about the idea of you being some sort of trailblazer? I really and truly did not think about it at all. Part of the reason being, it has always seemed counterintuitive to me that one should want to be accepted in any setting, whether I was walking into an NFL owners meeting or a meeting of Raider ownership or a team meeting, a meeting with municipal leaders, bankers, any sort of meeting with the hope and the expectation that no one would be thinking about my gender 
if I was thinking about my gender. I just don't think that makes sense. I'm not suggesting it's the right plan for everyone, but it worked for me. I didn't spend any time thinking about my gender. If other people wanted to, they could waste their time. I wasn't going to waste mine. Right, but but you do understand that a lot of people see you as that. Right? You you understand because of the things you've been able to accomplish, and you know in a, in a in an era where I mean there there are a lot more women working in the NFL on all levels right now. But when you were going through your ascension, you had to look around and say, eh, not a lot of people like me here. Trey, at my first NFL owners meeting, I was the only woman in the room. And there was a moment before the meeting, um, as you know, at league meetings, yeah. everybody gathers in the back of the room and has coffee or snacks, breakfast, whatever you want to call it, before the meeting starts. And my first league owners meeting, I was in the back. I was um, with the other team owners. And the owner of a team said to me, uh, he walked up to me and said, asked me to get him coffee. And I looked around and I realized I'm the only woman here that's not on the catering staff. Yeah. So I had fun with it. I had to decide just on the dime, so to speak, how I was going to respond. And to thine own self be true, I decided to have fun with it. And um, so, yes, I did realize I was the only woman in the room. So when you said you had fun with it, what did you do? How did you how did you uh, take him down without totally taking him down? Oh, I had fun. So he walks up to me, we're about to start the league meeting, and he asks me to get him coffee. So I look around, I realize, oh, wow, you know, I am the only woman here who's not on the catering staff. And I immediately decided this was going to be fun. And I looked at him and I said, sure, how do you take it? And he told me how he took the coffee. And I knew within a moment or two, we'd be starting the meeting. And he would see that when the catering staff left the room, I wasn't leaving the room. I was taking a seat at the table. So I asked him how he got the co wanted his coffee, and I brought it to him. And sure enough, a couple of minutes later, the meeting is called to order, and we all walk to our seats. My seat, by happenstance, was right across from his. <laughs> and when he saw me sit down in my chair, you could see the blood just draining yeah. from his face. And I started giggling and laughing, and he started laughing. And we laughed at the moment together. And from the moment, that moment on, Every league meeting the two of us attended, he would walk up to me beforehand and say, may I get you some coffee? <laughs> and I would say, yes, you may. And it just became a running um, humorous memory for us, if you will. By the way, when I did hand him his coffee, he didn't tip me. And I used to tease him about that, too. I'm like, <laughs> you didn't even tip me. But no. my point being, I handled it in the manner that worked for me. That isn't the manner others would handle it. I've been criticized for the manner in which I handled it. I've been told I should have dressed him down. You know what? To thine own self be true. I handled it as I chose to handle it. And from that moment forward, not only did he tease me each or tease himself each meeting and say, may I get you coffee or how would you like your coffee? But he became one of my most ardent supporters in the league. And from that moment forward, he offered me every bit of his support and encouragement recognizing that I was the only woman in the room. So it worked out well. I, I find that sort of hubris sort of uh, really annoying that here, let me tell you what you should have done because clearly you figured out and it's worked well for you, but I know more than you, uh, right. but I'm not in your shoes. Like I, that stuff drives me crazy. Like I do, like you do you, that's fine, but don't tell me what I need to do because I think I'm doing okay here. I'm blowing you kisses because I agree with that entirely. And I am quick to note when people ask me for advice as to how to handle circumstances in which they're the only woman in the room or one of the only women in the room, I quickly note, to thine own self be true. 
and I say, here's what worked for me, but you've got to do what works for you. Yeah, so, so that was sort of a, a humorous sort of oops, my bad moment. Did you ever feel like there was a sense of people saying, what the hell is she doing in here? Oh, people said that a lot, but I don't know whether it was because of my gender, because of the position we took on matters in those league meetings, uh, because of the way I comported myself, maybe any of the above, all of the above, a combination of the above. I'm asked all the time, Trey, do I believe I was tested because I was a woman? And the answer is, I don't know. People are tested all the time. We're tested because of our race, our gender, our ethnicity, our age, our seniority, our educational background. We're tested all the time. Let's assume, though, because I think it's a fair assumption that I was tested because I was a woman. Well, what's the best thing to do when you're tested? Pass the damn test. Yeah. So that's where I put my energy. That's a great answer. And it's, it's certainly one that I think uh, a, a lot of people would absolutely respect. I want to talk, you brought it up earlier, but I do want to talk about Al, because for, for someone like myself who grew up with the Raiders of the 70s, I mean, Otis Sistrunk, Phil Villapiano, you know, Kenny Stabler, the Mad Stork, I mean, Cliff Branch, I mean, they, they were a cast of characters, okay? And, and Al was just sort of this omnipresent being over the entire organization. And, you know, you could not separate Al Davis from the Raiders or the Raiders from Al Davis. They were uh, completely joined at the hip. But, you know, in the last few years of his life, he, he became more of a caricature, I think, to a lot of people. But I think people need to understand how visionary he was. Like, you were the first CEO, female CEO of a team. He hired Tom Flores as the first Hispanic coach in the NFL. In the modern era, he hired Art Shell as the first African-American head coach in the NFL. I think people have forgotten or don't fully understand how much of a visionary he was along those lines in his career. Well, I'm thrilled that you use the word visionary uh, because he was a visionary and I was and I remain a beneficiary of his vision. Let me address the um, last years of his life first and then turn to the point that you just made. He had been very ill for a number of years before he passed away. And I knew that but that was not something we were sharing publicly. He did not want it shared publicly. So there was a lot of criticism heaped on Al. Some people still do heap criticism on him that in those last years, the last seven, eight, nine, whatever number of years it was of his life, he made decisions that were only in the short-term interest of the team, not the long-term interest. And, my, and they didn't work out. And my response to people who say that is, when you know you have a very limited number of years to live. You're going to define long-term very differently than if you have, or you believe you have limitless years left. We all have a limit on our life, but there's points in your life where you're not focused on the end of it. Al knew he had a very limited time to live and he made decisions that reflected that understanding. Were they the right in, uh, decisions in all instances? Obviously not. But let's give some space to people who are making decisions knowing they have very little time left. Now, that said, you are absolutely right. He was a visionary. Tom Flores, and I'll offer this chronologically, not in order of importance, but he hired Tom Flores, as you noted. He hired me. He advanced Art Shell to the head coaching position. And he did this without regard to race, gender, or any individuality, which has no bearing whatsoever 
on whether one can do a job. Those discussions weren't going on at the time. All the discussions people are having these days and of, of late about women in sports and women in the workplace and diversity and inclusiveness, those weren't discussions going on at the time I was hired. Those kind of discussions didn't exist really uh, in the NFL outside of the Raiders organization. And, and you were there for so many interesting and monumental moments. Um, I think obviously one of them I want to talk about, I know you don't want to talk about it, uh, but it's the tuck rule game, right? I know. I'm sorry. It's history. We got, I, I got to do it. Like, I know you do. Do, do, do. do you guys feel in any way, shape or form that maybe if, if that hadn't happened, we could have nipped this whole Patriots dynasty Belichick Brady thing in the bud. You know, there's that old, um, I don't mean to say old, there's a, a terrific um, concept of when a butterfly flaps its wings. Yeah. Or, and I don't know exactly. The butterfly I may be effect. Butchering ex- yeah. The butterfly effect, but I may be butchering how exactly to say that. But yes, the butterfly effect, that when a butterfly flutters, that's better than flaps. When a butterfly flutters its wings, certain things occur. And, and we can't control for the variable about what would or would not have happened but for the tuck rule. What we do know is it was the start of the Patriot dynasty. Dynasty. People focus on the tuck rule itself. Not enough fo- people focus on the fact that it incur- occurred inside of two minutes. Yep. And the reason I note that is, had it happened 10 or 15 or so seconds earlier, game over. Because the Patriots were out of timeouts. Yep. The Patriots could not have challenged that call. But because it occurred just inside the two-minute warning, the challenge was in the hands of the league office. So you talk about it being a game of seconds and a game of inches, as I often do. This was a game of seconds. Not too many seconds earlier. No challenge possible for the Patriots. Game over. So might the Patriot dynasty have started a year later? Maybe. We don't know. We can't control for those variables or the butterfly effect. But I do know with respect to that call, not that many seconds earlier, game over and we go on to play in the championship game. And and for those that don't absolutely recall, it was a divisional playoff game in Foxborough in one of the best and worst, I guess you could say, snowstorms of all. I mean, it it was coming down the entire game. There was no way to avoid having to deal with all the snow everywhere. Had you guys ever even heard of the tuck rule before that game? I had not. That does not mean that others with the organization had not. I had not. Or if I had, it had only been in passing and sort of flipping through a rule book. But I had never, ever, ever seen it implemented or interpreted uh, in the manner it was that night. Yeah. The thing that I also remember about that game is not only did the tuck rule keep the Patriots alive, but that game had to go to overtime. And I think Adam Vinatieri, that was a, I think it was a 40 something yarder in that, not to win the game, but to send it to overtime. That might've been one of the greatest kicks in the history of the NFL's postseason. I mean, that thing, it was, it was incredible. Well, and you know, let me take this moment to note as many people do when I talk about the tuck rule game, they say, Amy, you still could have gone on to win the game. And I do understand of course, that the reversal of that call didn't officially end the game, we went on to play, as you just noted, with a Vinatieri kick, sending it to overtime. But when that decision was made to overturn that call, I saw the faces on our players. I saw the faces on our coaches. The heartbreak. We were 
all simply stunned. And I offer that not by way of excuse because one has to simply go on and play when there's a ruling against one's team. But I had the feeling when that was overturned, we wouldn't win the game just by the look of the faces on our players and the heartbreak they were all feeling. Again, I offer that as an explanation as to what what was going on when people point out to me there was more time to win the game. That was a gut punch. Yeah. No, listen, that was the game's over. That, Like you said, ostensibly the game is done at that point. And then to continue the battle, it, listen, you, you have to move on next play. I get all that. It's easy to say it's much harder to do, especially when the stakes were what they were in that situation. So, so that was just one of the many interesting things that happened in your tenure uh, with the Raiders. I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on a couple of others, in, including the guy who I think we were all deprived of seeing just how amazing he would be. And, and that's Bo Jackson. I mean, uh, you know, I you, much, in, much in the same way, no one knew about the tuck rule until that game. I'd never heard the term avascular necrosis uh, before the Bo Jackson injury in that game against the Bengals. For people that don't know and are a little younger and just hear, oh, this guy, Bo Jackson, how much of just an incredible freak of nature was he? Hard to describe. It was something to behold to watch him play. He wasn't simply spectacular. He was special. And the reason you saw me smiling when you said avascular necrosis is as follows. I had never heard that term either until immediately, immediately after the game. So for those who don't know, Bo was running. A defender grabbed him by the leg. Wasn't an, it was not at all an unfair tackle. There was nothing wrong with it. There was nothing that wasn't clean and fair and fine. But he grabbed Bo by the leg, and Bo twisted. And it was clear that he was injured on the play, and he came to the sideline. And after the game, and I should back up and say that my brother and sister-in-law are doctors, and they were at the game. And after the game, people were talking about, how's Bo? How's Bo? We all believed he'd be ready to go the next week. We didn't think the injury was particularly significant. And I will never forget my sister-in-law saying, Amy, you've got to watch out for avascular necrosis. Really? It was the first time I heard those words. Absolutely. She diagnosed it from the stands. So we go back to the office that night and we're there the next day and everybody's very, very hopeful that Bo's going to be good to go the following week. And everybody's, you know, it wasn't a bad tackle. There was nothing unclean about it. It wasn't untoward in any way. He'll be fine. And then our doctors came back and said avascular necrosis. And because of that, so many people didn't get to see Bo play a full career in football. And that would have been something to behold. Yeah, for those that don't know, avascular necrosis basically means blood flow is not getting to where it needs to be, which things die. Necrosis is things do not come back, they don't regenerate, and basically you're done. Yeah, there's never been a more sort of spectacular physical specimen in my mind than Bo. I mean, you know. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to add, after the game that night, um, in talking to people with the team, including Al, I said, You know, my understanding is, and I went on to explain what my sister-in-law shared with me, but I said, my understanding is we need to be concerned about avascular necrosis. And many people poo-pooed that. Al did not poo-poo it. He said, no, let's look into this. And sure enough, that's what it was. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, just (laughs) 
there's so many memories I have of just Bo just willing things to happen, whether it's, you know, running out of the kingdom on that Monday night game, plowing over Brian Bosworth, just, just, you know, I mean, and, and the other thing, he was such an amazing baseball player too. Like look, Deion Sanders was an amazing two-way athlete. Brian Jordan was very underrated as a two-way athlete, uh, you know, also played very well in, in football and, and baseball. But to me, there's Bo Jackson and then there's everybody else. Well, that when he ran over Brian Bosworth, I mean, he ran over Brian Bosworth the way I might run over, I don't know, a little lump of dirt on the ground. I mean, it was like Bosworth was of no Poor Bos. Yeah, he, he, did, he did not matter. He did not matter whatsoever. <laughs> uh, and, and as to Bo's baseball career, I don't know if you remember the time that he was in the All-Star game down in Orange County. And they used Bo, the, the manager of that team, put Bo batting first, which everyone thought, you know, why is Bo bat the leadoff batter? Why is Bo the leadoff batter? Well, I was at an event a number of years, a decades actually later, for Tony LaRusse's Animal Rescue Foundation. And I was standing in a group of people, including Tony, and someone brought up Bo. And I started saying, can you believe in that all-star game? The manager batted him first? Well, I didn't realized Tony had been the manager of that game. So Tony just sat there with this great smile and said, yeah, someone used him as the leadoff hitter. And it was Tony. Yeah. But Bo was, I'll tell you, he was spectacular on the football field. He was spectacular on the baseball diamond and a spectacular man yeah. off the field and off the diamond. Well, I, I think he hit a home run in, in the in that game as a leadoff hitter. If I'm, I, I, might, I may be conflating another uh, all-star game, but I, you know, I think he just took one deep I, I if, Ronald Reagan I think Ronald Reagan was still being interviewed in the booth <laughs> uh, at the time and when he was president and Bo just jacked one right out of the out of the stadium well and if we're talking about the same home run um it was an odd home run and it just showed his strength and power because it just sort of was like it was almost like a line drive home run yeah 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 to the deepest part of of center field um he, listen kids do yourself a favor YouTube Bo Jackson's highlights, and uh, you just, he was absolutely one of a kind. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll come back uh, and, and wrap things up here with uh, Amy Trask on this episode of Half Forgotten History. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, here's a peek of what you can learn by watching Trey's Trends each week on Caesar Sportsbook social media and YouTube channels. We're coming off what many will believe as the greatest single weekend of games in NFL playoff history. And it was indeed a story. There's no way around it. This was the first divisional round ever featuring a game-winning score on the final play of all four games. For just the third time in divisional history, three road teams won, and we came within 13 seconds of the first time that all four road division teams would have won. Now, the Chiefs became the first team ever to host four conference championships and it just so happens to be the first four years as Patrick Mahomes has been the club's full-time starter. It's not a coincidence. At Arrowhead in his postseason, Mahomes has thrown 23 touchdown passes against one interception, and the Chiefs have gone 7-1 and one in those eight home playoff games. The Bengals, who are getting seven points, though, are no pushovers. They're 4-2 straight up and 5-1 and one against the spread as road dogs this season and knocked off the Chiefs 34-31 in Week 17, their only post-Halloween loss. The Rams are four-point home favorites this weekend against the 49ers, despite losing six straight games to their division rivals. L.A. was favored in five of those six meetings, by the way. The 49ers have thrived as underdogs as well, going 12-7 straight up and 14-5 against the spread in their last 19 games, including playoffs, when getting points. 
So here's what you need to do. Find more of Trey's trends at Caesar Sports on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube with new episodes dropping every Friday. 21 or older, 18 or older in D.C. must be physically present in Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Louisiana, Maryland, Michigan, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, or Washington, D.C. Sports betting is void in Georgia, Hawaii, Ohio, and Utah, and other states where prohibited. Know when to stop before you start. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER. That's 1-800-426-2537. Or in West Virginia, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. Colorado, D.C., Nevada, call 1-800-522-4700. Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Iowa, call 1-800-BETS-OFF. Louisiana, call 1-877-770-STOP. In Michigan, call 1-800-270-7117. Tennessee, call or text TN Redline at 1-800-889-9789. Virginia, call 1-888-532-3500. Copyright 2002, Caesars Entertainment. Gambling problem in New York? Call 1-877-8-HOPE-NEW-YORK or text HOPE-NEW-YORK 467369. All right, back with Amy Trask on this episode of Half Forgotten History. So just real quickly, what is your better nickname because I've, I've heard you called the princess of darkness or al davis with ovaries which one do you like better <laughs> well look i think princess of darkness is the best nickname ever and i shall forever cherish that nickname and it was not given to me i don't know what the expression is do you give someone a nickname or bestowed upon me as a compliment to the contrary mike silver was working on an article on a piece for sports illustrated and he was interviewing people around the league, league executives, team executives, and he kept hearing me referred to as the princess of darkness. <laughs> and it was not intended as a compliment. Yeah. But when I read the piece and I saw princess of darkness, I thought, I'm going to embrace that. And Raider fans embraced that. And from that point on in the Raider world, I have been the princess of darkness and I think it's the best nickname ever. Now, the one of the quotes in Mike's piece went on to say, she is the princess of darkness, that we refer to her as the princess of darkness. And it was very clear they did not do that to my face, but behind my back. And it went on to say, she's a smarter, meaner Al Davis with a law degree. So I used to tease Al about that all the time. We'd be sitting in his office, disagreeing about something, arguing about something. And when we'd come to the end of the discussion, I would look at him and I would say, smarter, meaner. And I would get up and walk out the door. <laughs> that's, that's a nice card to play. That, that's a pretty nice card to play. By the way, right? Mike Silver, right? also a Cal Bear. We should, we should point that out because if we didn't point it out, he'll tell us when he sees us that you didn't say it. So, Mike, we get it. You also went to Cal. We completely understand. Mike and I went to the same high school, although I'm older than Mike. We'll just leave it at that. And we both went to Cal, and I shall forever thank him for my nickname. Yeah, I, I was just going to say you just went to went to the same high school, and I would have been good with it. What, what do you think Al would think of uh, Allegiant Stadium? I think he would love the stadium itself. It's a magnificent, magnificent building, and I think he would love the stadium. I think he would be sad that the team left Oakland because Oakland had such a special part in his heart. And by the way, it is not mutually inconsistent to believe both of those things, to be sad that the team left in order to get that stadium accomplished, to achieve that stadium dream, and to be thrilled with the outcome of the stadium and the stadium dream. 
you know, you, you said you never had a plan and it just sort of happened. And I, I'm sort of the same way. Like someone asked me once, hey, was this your idea to have this? And I was like, no, I just sort of went along with it. And lo and behold, it it sort of came about. But you decided to leave the Raiders organization. Um, what made you realize that it was time for you to try something else? Well, I want to note first that the fact that you too don't have plans or strategies is only <laughs> one of the umpteen reasons I adore you. Uh, <laughs> After Al passed away, which was during the football season, it was just sort of dig in and get through the season. And then when the season ended, it was my responsibility to handle the transition of ownership. I had done all the work on the succession planning and the estate planning with the league in terms of there's I won't bore you with them now, but there's very strict uh, rules with respect to succession and what an organization has to do. And I'd handled all of that for Al. So it was my responsibility to make sure there was a smooth transition. And as I was working through that, I said to my husband early on that I had a big decision to make, whether to stay or whether to leave. And, you know, I was like Hamlet, to be or not to be. It took me about a year and a half, maybe longer, maybe a little longer than that, to reach the decision that it was the right thing for me to do, to leave. And there's not one reason. There were a few reasons. I've chosen not to share them publicly. But um, I did decide to leave and I did. I'm also self-aware enough to know. Um, and so I shared with my husband that until I made the decision as to whether to stay or go, I wasn't going to be able to focus on what I would do next. I had to make that decision before I could think about what would be next. So the morning after I told uh, the team owner that I was leaving the organization, I woke up, looked at my husband and said, I'm a blight on humanity. I have nothing to do. And we both started laughing and he said, you've worked for the Raiders for almost 30 years. Why don't you enjoy doing nothing for like a day or so and then start thinking about it? So we both laughed. And listen, you've gone on to have an incredible career. You you do great work with, with CBS on the other morning show. And, and you know, uh, we need to talk is also uh, on your, on your resume. Um, but the book, you negotiate like a girl. What made you want to write that book? I love to write. I absolutely love to write. There were, you know, as I said, no plan. So there were times uh, both before college, during college, after college, after law school that I thought maybe I'll be a writer. You know, maybe I'll be a journalist. Maybe I'll write trashy romance novels. Maybe I'll be like Jessica Fletcher and write spy novels or mystery novels. Or maybe I'll um, write spy novels. I really love to write. And I had things I wished to share. So I decided to write. And I don't think it was... Not that I was intent on sharing, so therefore I was going to write. It wasn't that I love to write, and that's the only reason I chose to share. It was sort of a confluence of those two things. Yeah. Um, and the book has been wildly successful. And obviously now people see you as what you were, even though you didn't think of yourself in those terms, as a role model, as a groundbreaker. What do you say to young women or girls everywhere who say, hey, I want to do what she did. Well, I would say the same thing to young women as I would say to young men, uh, which is reach for your dreams, reach for your goals, and understand a few things. Hard work matters. Hard work really, really matters. So when you think you can't work any harder than you're working, find a way to work harder. That would be my advice without regard to gender. In other words, I would say that to young women and to young men. To young women, I would say, 
to thine own self be true and find what works for you in terms of navigating your path through areas where there may be no other women. I would go on to share what worked for me, but I would again note um, the best advice I've ever received in my whole life was from my mom who told me to thine own self be true. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up your mom because uh, I found an article where you talked a little bit about her and she was very bright and she really wanted to go into pharmacy and she couldn't get a job. And she was told straight up, listen, you're smart, but you have that giant ring on your finger. In other words, because she was married, no one's going to hire you. And, and it, it's just, I find it interesting that she went from that place in her life to have a daughter who's been able to do the things that you've been able to do. Well, and she went on to do tremendous things as well. And thank you for raising that tray. She graduated college at a time uh, when women weren't studying chemistry. Her undergraduate degree was in chemistry. She was the only woman with that um, major. I should say her undergraduate major was chemistry. Uh, her bachelor's degree is in chemistry. And she was interviewing with every pharmaceutical company to try to get a job, and she wasn't getting one. And finally, her last interview, she looked at the company and said, why is no one offering me a job? Everyone's offered my lab partner a job, and frankly, he wouldn't have passed chemistry lab without me. So why am I not getting any job offers? And the guy looked at her like, don't you get it? And he did, as you said, stated it clearly and frankly. You're a beautiful woman. You've got a large diamond ring on your hand. You're going to get married and have kids, or you are married and you're going to have kids. And nobody's going to put in the effort and the resources to training you only to have you leave. And she thought, oh, okay, I gotcha. She went on to get a master's degree and a doctoral degree. And she dedicated her career to teaching those who weren't traditionally taught science about science. And she went on to teach teachers how to teach science with an emphasis on teaching those who had been ignored in many regards in the science field. In other words, she was kind of STEM before there was STEM. So when Al hired me uh, and my mom, and I inherited this from her, she did, you know, no dainty voice, loud voice, strong voice. Um, but once in my early years with the Raiders, she said in a very, very soft voice, which was uncharacteristic for her, so it caught my attention, how much she appreciated Al Davis. And I thought to myself, okay, this is not a football aficionado. She's not talking about the deep ball. She's not talking about man coverage. And she went on to say that he did in hiring me what no one would do when she was coming out of college. And that resonated with her. And when I share that story with Al, it was a moment. Um, he became very emotional. Well, I, I would say that I don't think the apple fell very far from the tree. Uh, and uh, I'm sure she's still very, very proud of the person you've become. Amy, it has been my joy over the last few years to get to know you a little better. And uh, I, I really appreciate you sharing your story. I think a lot of people will be inspired and interested uh, by how you got to where you are. And I wish you nothing but continued success. Trey, it is absolutely an honor and a pleasure and so much fun to join you for this conversation. And to be clear, you are never, ever getting rid of me. If you try, I will hunt you down and stalk you for the rest of your born days. And to anybody who's listening in law enforcement, I'm not really going to stalk him. He knows what I mean. Oh, I do. And I'm terrified. Uh, <laughs> thanks, kid. Thank you. So thanks once again to Amy Trask for joining us. Always a delight to talk to my good friend. But as we've seen in this postseason, 
If you don't have a kicker, you really don't have a chance. So coming up on our next episode of Half Forgotten History, we'll talk to three kickers who have made big-time kicks in their careers, including the postseason. Jay Feely, Lawrence Tynes, and the man who has never, at the time of this taping, missed a postseason career kick, the Niners' legendary Robbie Gold. That's next on Half Forgotten History. We'll see you then.